Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you to whoever you are listening to this. Before we start, just to remind you that we do this podcast two, three times a week. But we don't always know which days it's going to be on, so there's only one way to know, and that is to subscribe and get notifications. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Right, enough about that. Let's talk some rugby. Just before we start today's podcast, we've got some exciting and important news to tell you about our podcast. As of now, our podcasts will be hosted on the Global Player app. Now, don't worry, if you listen to us on other platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, that's fine. But we recommend you download the Global Player app to listen to our podcast before it's released on any other player. The Global Player is available to download on iOS and Google stores. I'm Ben James, and it's another podcast today, and we're joined once again by a very special guest. Uh, it's the second in this new series, uh, Isolation uh, Care Package, Rugby Care Package. We're still struggling on a name, to be honest. Um, we've had a few suggestions. Desert Trial and Discs was one from the last podcast, which is very good. Um, we'll see if we can land on a definitive name today, but as I say, we've got a special guest. It is none other than Ross Harris. How you doing, Ross? I'm doing okay, thanks, Ben. Yeah, sort of coping in these bizarre and strange times. I think we're all finding new ways to occupy our time and to amuse ourselves. But uh, yeah, pleasure to be on. And that's the perfect segue into what this podcast is about, because it is about finding ways to occupy ourselves during lockdown. With with rugby content, uh, we asked you to go away and find four clips um, of, of rugby content that you, you, you enjoyed watching throughout isolation and you've done exactly that and i got to say they're, they're four very good clips uh, <laughs> very diverse and um, but yeah very great great rugby clips well thank you sir yeah I mean I, I think we all we're all in search of something amusing at the moment aren't we because I don't know about you but I've been kind of most of my TV viewing over the last few weeks I, I've kind of stumbled into the most kind of melancholic pathos-ridden TV dramas imaginable. I've been watching Afterlife, um, the Tim Minchin thing, Upright. Uh, I've just been recommending this Normal People as well, the adaptation of the oh, yeah. the novel that was shortlisted for the book. Uh, and, and all of them, while brilliantly crafted bits of television, are just sort of so incredibly emotional. Um, but you seem sucked in to these things. And that, that's kind of where my TV viewing is has been the last few days. So when you sent me this challenge, I thought I've got to seek out something that is a little more lighthearted, a little less heavy. Um, so that sort of informed my decision. One of the the clips is um, is something that I've got that kind of resonates with me. One of my uh, most abiding rugby memories. So that, that's a pure rugby one, which we'll probably come on to. But um, the one that I kicked off with is something that I've always found incredibly amusing and that's forwards trying to be backs and uh, there's many ways as we know that forwards can try and be backs uh, and abandon their fundamental roles of pushing and shoving and lifting and tackling um, but the one that often uh, gives rise to the most amusement is is the attempted drop goal and yeah. uh, there's, there's been many attempts over the years don't get me wrong there's been a, some appalling attempts by backs who should know better um but uh, I, I stumbled across the compilation on uh, Planet Rugby, and most of them taken from Super Rugby. Uh, some of the Hemsley boys seem to think they're a bit more skillful than, than our boys, or at least they, they 
they don't stick to their roles perhaps as well as the Northern Hemisphere boys do. But uh, yeah, that particular selection has just got some absolute beauties in it, um, including, of course, probably the most famous forward drop goal of all time was in Zambrock against England in 95, I think it was. Uh, and even to this day, I remember at the time being astonished by the audacity of it. But even to this day, watching it, I think, how on, what, first of all, what's going through his mind? But it's the distance. He actually feels the ball in his own half. And to have the, the sheer audacity to think, I know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to run and look for contact and bulldoze my way over the nearest tackler. I'm just going to jog casually into the, the other half of the pitch and uh, launch a speculative drop goal attempt. And it was absolutely incredible to see a, a big burly number eight attempt to do that. Not just attempt to do it, but pull it off. So that, that is the, the cream of the crop. And that's the one that finishes this particular set of clips. Always worth a look at, Ben. It is. I mean, I, I really enjoyed watching it. The thing with Zinzan, bro, you don't see fly halves attempting it from that distance. And I know it was South Africa, so maybe altitude played its part, but it's just a ridiculously long drop goal. Ludicrous, isn't it? I guess that's what I love about him. You know, he was always a square peg in a round hole to a degree, wasn't he? He had the bulk and the physicality to be a, a test number eight, but he, he was an athlete as well. You know, I think the guy, the guy who he effectively replaced in that all-back side was Wayne Shelford, and that is not something you could ever imagine Buck Shelford doing. You know, he was your proper meat and potatoes, terrifying number eight. And Brooke just... He was multi-dimensional in that respect, wasn't he? A Renaissance man. Oh, very much so. The other, the other drop goal that I love that's on that compilation clip is uh, Matt Dunnins for for the Waratahs. <laughs> yes. Purely for the fact that he's kicked a drop goal and then he's immediately chastised by his teammates because they needed four tries. <laughs> yeah. He actually he he nails it and ends up apologising, doesn't he? And you think like a tubby loose head prop like that you'd think if they'd ever pulled off a drop goal in an elite game of rugby they'd be running into the first row of the terraces and high-fiving everyone but yeah he ends up sort of sheepishly raising his hand in apology and uh, trundling back into his own half but it was a it was a hell of a drop goal he got you know, some height on any, it as well that was the thing yeah height perfectly bisected the posts end over end you know in terms of execution <laughs> You know, even the best fly halves at test level would have been proud of that one. It's just it's just that brilliant thing of, as soon as he put boot to ball, he thought, there's no way this is going near the posts. Yeah. <laughs> and the ball just keeps rising. Yeah, perfectly struck. It was so graceful and elegant. A lot of respect for the man. Of course, the one that's missing from that, mainly because it didn't go through the posts, is, is Adam Jones's classic from, when was that, 2013, 2014? Yeah, do, do you know what? That was that was the kind of that was what piqued my curiosity when I was thinking about stuff to to include in this. Because I, I, I remember, um, you know, I, I wrote Adam Jones's autobiography, as you know, and and I remember one recurring theme during that was how growing up he was a frustrated fly half, you know, and it was only his size that pushed him towards first the forwards and, and then eventually the the front row. But uh, a little-known fact, which astonished me and still astonishes me to this day, is that Adam Jones remains the record point scorer uh, for points in a single game for his village club, Abercrave, because he was the goal kicker. 
uh, when he played for Abercrave, which is something that's lost on a lot of people. So he was always someone who perhaps wasn't uh, or certainly thought that his skills weren't celebrated as much as they should have been. You know, when he was uh, an international player, he was effectively told to do the nuts and bolts, to push in the scrum, to lift in the line out, make his tackles, and, and not a great deal else. And because he was so good at that, that's all that was required of him. But uh, actually, he is a, a deeply frustrated fly half in a tight head props body. And, and I think that uh, example against uh, Munster, I think it was, wasn't it, for the Blues? Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, I think that was that frustrated fly-off coming out, but much uh, the same as Matt Dunning's. It was all about the reaction, wasn't it? Because I think that was, it was about, it was, it was level, wasn't it? Like 21 all or something with a few minutes to go. So that it could late, well have yeah. been the, the match-winning score. But it was his reaction afterwards that makes that clip, you know, this cheeky schoolboy laugh, which people don't know, Bob, that, that is typical of him. You know, he's always got a mischievous glint in his eye. Uh, I absolutely love that. And you're right, that, that would have made that compilation had it sailed between the posts in the manner that, that Matt Dunnings did. It's just, it's just the fact that he, he, he just can't keep his, his straight face together. He, he, he just can't stop laughing once he's, he's missed it. He's, I think he has, you know, <laughs> no. got to pack down to scrummage now, but it's just, can't stop laughing. <laughs> yeah. And what was he doing in the first receiver position anyway? You know, like like I say, frustrated fly half. And I think he, that was almost coming towards the end of his career, wasn't it? You know, the, the ten years at the Ospreys had sort of ended in a way that he wasn't necessarily too happy about. The Blues gave him a one-year contract, gave him a lifeline. And I think he almost felt a bit liberated in that shirt. You know, felt a bit bit of freedom. And God, if that had gone over, that would have been on his show reel for the rest of his his life for sure. Oh, absolutely. Um... Let's move on to the second clip. There's there's some drop goals in that one as well. The second clip, yes. Um, an essay against Australia, 1992. Um, this has always, you know, certainly gone down in their history as their treble winning season. It, was a, it wasn't technically a treble, was it? They won the league and cup that year, uh, the only competition that they were in. But the fact they beat the touring Wallabies, um, they're calling it a treble. And I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> because um, they did three very special things in that season. But uh, that I, I remember that game vividly. Um, and, you know, I wasn't around when uh, Sanetti beat the All Blacks 9-3 famously. So um, although that one is the most celebrated uh, victory in their history, and rightly so, it was the one against Australia in 92 that, that stuck in my mind and, and that I revisit uh, regularly because I remember it so vividly you know I was of a rugby watching age and um, Australia were the world champions of course you know they won that second world cup with such elan by playing a, a game that was so joyful to watch you know a style of rugby that was inventive that was you know you know for, from they kind of took rugby to another level. They'd seen the All Blacks win the first World Cup and thought, right, how are we going to do that four years hence? Uh, and as we know, you know, all the great Wallabies teams had such enterprise in the backs, such imagination, uh, and that team was probably the, the vanguard of all of that. So for them to come to Stradley Park, as it was then, um, and pick a team, you know, that was loaded with internationals, they didn't stick their midweek side out there. You know, some of the names there, Horan played, albeit at 10, Jason Little, Kearns, McKenzie, John Eels was playing, Willie Off and Gowie. You know, there were some some mighty, mighty test players in that lineup. And uh, Sanessi just 
did a job on them. Um, you know, and, and the, I guess the thing everyone will remember is the Ian Evans try. I certainly remember that so vividly because it was so perfectly executed. It was almost a Wallaby-style move. You know, Colin Stevens turns his back on the Wallabies' defence. Simon Davis, you know, the, the kind of blunt force crash ball centre runs a perfect dummy line, just as enough to confuse the Aussie defence. And then Yaya Evans, you know, the ultimate finisher. Uh, and my rugby hero at that time in my life just carves through on that arcing run under the posts, bamboozles the Aussie defence, and uh, followed up, of course, by one of the most famous try celebrations in, in Welsh rugby history, Rupert Moon and Yaya Evans with a chest bump. And, uh, and uh, the rest is history. Fantastic piece of skill. I was going to touch upon that celebration. Um, how, how often were you doing chest bumps? <laughs> After that, <laughs> well, you're a Radnor boy, Ben, so you'll probably appreciate this reference. Um, around about that time in my life, we used to go drinking in an establishment that's long since gone now, the Mostyn Hotel in Sandrine Nod Wells. I don't know if you ever set foot in there. You may be a bit young for that. Before my time, yeah. But uh, the Mostyn Hotel was where everyone tended to congregate, you know, sixth form uh, age. Uh, obviously drinking lemonade at that point in time. And uh, I remember there were two songs on the jukebox in the Mostyn that we almost had on rotation. It, it was ancient, you know, ancient seven inches going back years. And the only two songs we thought worthy of playing were Iron Man by Black Sabbath and Painted Black by the Rolling Stones. So you always knew when uh, our posse from Sandringham High School was in because one of those two songs we'd play on the jukebox. And I remember my, my friend and I used to regularly recreate the chest bump, uh, as you've correctly surmised. And we did it one evening at the Mostyn Hotel while I think Painted Black was on the jukebox. And my mate Stephen Morgan took a rather too hearty a run-up and forgot to realise that there was a, a flight of stairs leading down to where the pool table was. And as he launched himself into the chest bump, lost his balance on landing, tripped down a flight of about five or so stairs and knocked himself out. So uh, we decided thereafter that perhaps it was a little too dangerous to recreate the chest bump, but uh, we'd done it plenty of times before then. Time to retire. Only could happen in Landrindod, as most things <laughs> as most things can. <laughs> A lot, yeah, a lot, a lot goes on behind the scenes in Sandrine Dodds, as you well know. Indeed, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. kind of the, the Victorian jewel in Mid Wales is crowned, but there's a seedy underbelly to that place as well. Indeed, yeah, the Victorian festival, of course, it's probably the <laughs> the height of the uh, the seedy underbelly, but that's <laughs> sure we won't touch upon that. Of course, I said about drop goals, Colin Stevens, uh, who you know, it's a fantastic fly half in his day. The drop goals he was dropping that day were were near enough on the touchline. Yeah, amazing, wasn't it? He also reminds me a bit of Phil Bennett. You know that in that Scarlets tradition, he had that staccato running style. He was pretty small, um, could could bamboozle defences. I thought he was incredibly underrated. You know, he, he got capped, but he sort of played in a period where he didn't he didn't get a long run in that. Wales team, but he was a, a brilliant servant week in, week out for Slethi, and that partnership with Rupert Moon was was just made in heaven. You know, the two of them perfectly complemented one another. Um, but yeah, I mean, that day, it, it, his radar was just so bang on, wasn't it? There was actually another attempt earlier in the game where he hit the post, and, and it was probably the best struck of 
of all of them. You know, it was end over end, soaring high, and, and I thought that was going to be um, going through the post. But that one just knocked off the upright. But the two the two critical ones, as you mentioned, were over the left-hand side of the pitch. He's a right-footed kicker, so, um, you know, he just connected with them both brilliantly. One was a bit more of a peach than the other, I guess. Um, but it was the first one of the two, wasn't it, that put the, the Scarlets back into the lead. And, uh, oh, the celebrations were just out of this world, weren't they? Because, uh, as we mentioned, you know, that, that was a World Cup winning Wallaby side. You know, only the previous year they'd, they'd beaten, um, they'd won the World Cup and, and they'd beaten Wales as well in 91. You probably remember that ill-fated tour to Australia where Wales lost the, the solitary test match 63-6. Uh, and all kinds of infighting, you know, all the backstory about the the Neath clique because Ron Waldron was coach on that tour and how the players didn't get on with one another and there was that awful incident in the post-match dinner where they publicly fell out and glasses were flying and Mike Hall got his, himself injured and cut his hand on a, a broken glass and, and all the fallout that followed that. And if someone had said to you, you know, in in a year's time, that same Australian side will come over to Wales and not just one club side, because Swansea won, didn't they, on that same tour, two of Wales' club sides will beat that Australian side. No one would have believed you for a second. It was such a, an incredible transformation in fortunes. I know Wales lost test that autumn, but uh, for Leslie and Swansea to, to both beat that Australian side was some achievement. Oh, indeed. I've got, I've got the, uh, the starting 15 up here and just... Re- reeling through the names, obviously Ricky Evans, legend, front, just a, a massive character. Um, I interviewed him last year at a petrol station. Oh, I remember Cardiff. that. Yeah, just he's a, a Buddhist now, isn't he? Uh, I don't think he practices practices as much as he as he once did, but he yeah, he's, he's sort of he's working for like airport fire ambulance um, fire service in uh, Dubai, and yeah, he, yeah. He's, he became a Buddhist after seeing um, what's the Tom Cruise film. From the nineties, ooh, oh, not it's... Top Gun, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's cocktail. It's cocktail. No. <laughs> I don't remember any Buddhism in that. <laughs> but yeah, it was um, oh, one of those things a Tom Cruise film from the nineties, and he, he decided to become a Buddhist off the back of that. But uh, yeah, wow. Then other people, like, you know, like Mark Perigo and Emily Lewis, and Lynn the... Jones. Just... That, that what what a back row. Just what incredible back row. Back row. Yeah, like three athletes, three sort of singular talents. I mean, Perigo and Lynn Jones on either flank were, and well, still are, totally enigmatic, aren't they? You know, Lynn Jones, as we all know, because he's been in the public eye a lot more than Perigo has. Perigo seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. But that was another contender for this. I believe he's living in um, France, yeah. He is in France, that was he. I believe so, Because that was another contender for my shortlist, was the, the item that uh, Scrum 5 did many, many years ago where Ricochet... Oh, no, sorry, not... I'm thinking... I'm confusing with the Case Muse one, but the one where Mark Perigo was filmed essentially running with his top off through a river and lifting logs above his head, um, which apparently was part of his training regimen. You know, he was so eccentric. They do extras on the morning of games and, yeah, total enigma. Uh, so to have him on one flank and Lynn Jones on the other. And then, you know, the the bull, Emmy Lewis, uh, in between the two of them, you know, who, who could cover all three back row positions himself. Uh, such a, a dynamic 
back row. You know, Perigo just laying waste to everyone in front of him. Lynn Jones, a canny, clever link player at, at seven. And, and, and Emmy Lewis can pretty much do anything. You know, such a, a talented athlete, but strong as you like. You know, not, not the, the biggest of physical specimens, was he? But something about the way he carried ball into contact um, and could just knock players over. So that, that was a fantastic back row. And when you consider they were up against, what was it, Tim Gavin, Offhand Gowie, I forget who made up the. Oh, you know, I, haven't, I haven't got the, the Australia team to hand, but yeah, it was. But Offan Gowie himself, you know, he laid waste to Wales on the the '91 tour. You know, he was a serious, serious talent. So to to quell someone of his talents that day was was really impressive. And of course, Emil Lewis, to my eternal shame, being a being a rad boy again, getting that reference in. I, I. I before I knew him as a rugby player, I basically knew him as the guy who commentated on the uh, the, the Wales YFC Sevens competition at the Royal Welsh Show, <laughs> along, along with another sort of cult hero, John Davis. So it's only only as time's gone on, I've sort of appreciated the, their talents on the pitch. Oh, absolutely. He, he was a phenomenal player. But yeah, John Davis is another one. You know, he, he joined the team from Nice, didn't he, a, a few seasons after that yeah. one? But uh, you mentioned Ricky Evans and Lawrence Delaney was the other prop that day. Uh, again, just such a stalwart on that flatty side. And, you know, you look at his physique now and, you know, you wonder how he'd have coped in the modern game because he certainly didn't look athletic, but he could scrummage so well and was just such a, a formidable presence in that in that Scala side. Superb. And it, I did see, I did have a look as well on, on the internet earlier, Ben, to see if... One a few years ago, my my wife made me cull my VHS collection, which I'd stubbornly held on to, even though I didn't have a functioning video player. And I think I kept about three cassettes, which the rest of them went to the tip. But one of the three I kept was called Scarlet Fever, and it was a commemorative VHS of that inverted commas treble winning season, uh, narrated by Rupert Moon. In in Mooney's inimitable, uh, infectious, excitable uh, narrative style, and uh, he sort of did an alternative commentary on that Australian game, and uh, I, I just always remember it was a bit like you know John Aloma's World Cup rugby. Yeah, there's those oh, yeah. lines of commentary that you you always remember the McLaren and the Bill Beaumont lines of commentary that stick in your head. It's the same with that video when um. Uh, Colin Steams nailed that second drop goal. Mooney's commentary was uh, in his, was it like a, a Midlands accent, wasn't it, by way of Avatelleri and Celeste? But he just, uh, he delivers the line, sweet as a nut, fantastic. And it just stuck in my mind forevermore. So I could not bring myself to get rid of that VHS. But I'm delighted to say, in my, my cursory bit of research I did earlier, uh, the Scarlet FIFA video is online in full. Someone has uploaded it. So oh, uh, fantastic! Anyone listening to this wants a bit of proper nostalgia. Get stuck into that. Replete with terrible Casio keyboard um, background music as well. Oh, all, all the better to have the, well, uh, the Casio demo tracks. <laughs> exactly. But there's, there's, you've probably had a look yourself. There's loads of versions of the game online. Now, a couple of little chunks of, of highlights. There's a Scarlet Fever video which incorporates their whole season. And they played some 
unbelievable rugby that season, uh, just running the ball from anywhere. Um, but there's also the S4C coverage of the game that day, um, presented by Russell Isaac with uh, some inserts from Graf beforehand and, and Delmi Thomas, the main pundit, looking resplendent in his sort of scarlet cashmere, soft black collar. Um, and Delmi's one of those ageless blokes, isn't he? You know, he, he looks the same age now as he did when the Scarlets beat New Zealand 9-3, just this kind of Mount Rushmore style, carved granite face, um, and just, yeah, forever associated with that club. So if, if you've got the time, you can watch about two and a half hours worth of S4C coverage of that, that game if you want to just slip back into 1992. The one thing I have got is time. <laughs> so <laughs> like we all have, haven't we? Yeah. I'm Sam Warburton, and you're listening to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Okay, let's move on to the third clip, which obviously we're both Radner boys, so this is quite a fitting third clip. Um, it's a YouTube compilation, and it's it passes, it probably ticks all the big YouTube compilations. So first of all, music. Yeah. Yeah. Linton Park, Numb. So take that box. Nice bit of nineties new metal. It's a it's a Dan Lydia compilation, the Chopper. Yeah, I and and I this is a little nod to yourself as well, Ben. You know, m- referencing the uh, the Radner connection there, I thought you'd appreciate this one. Um, there aren't many famous alumni of Sandringham High School, um, but Dan Lydia is certainly the most famous of a lot. Um, he was there a good few years after me. So our path never crossed uh, on the hallowed pitches of Sandrine Not High. But uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, that think of those Grand Slams. I mean, I never thought I witnessed the Grand Slam. In, you know, I, I was I was alive in 1978 when Wales won um, the last one of that 70s dynasty. Um, and there is a picture of me watching it with my old man, but I, unsurprisingly, I have no recollection of it. Uh, at all, but I genuinely thought, you know, once the game went open and that gulf appeared to open up between England, France, and the rest, uh, I just thought Wales simply can't compete at that level anymore. And, and I sort of laboured under that misconception for many long years. I, I think as a lot of us did. So when we started winning Grand Slams uh, in the noughties, it, it just seemed like it almost make believe. You know, there was that oh five one. Um, which was which was built on style, wasn't it? You know, that Shane Williams and Gavin Henson, Tom Shankly and Kevin Morgan just, just running riot. The 08 one built more onto the Gatlin's style of rugby on, on defence, on aggression, on physicality, um, but still with Shane Williams winning player of the tournament and, and weaving his magic. And I just thought that 2012 Grand Slam you know, Dan Liddy was player of the tournament that year and deservedly so. And I just thought, you know, for all the, the style and the elan that Wales are capable of producing, I just thought his contribution to that campaign um, was just outstanding. And you only have to watch that compila- compilation to see how influential he was. You know, he's never been a flash ball carrier. He's never had like a Zinzan Brook style ability to drop a goal from halfway. Who has? But there was something about the honest, industrious way he went about his business that you can't help but admire. You know, almost like a Richard Hill of the 
England World Cup winning era, you know, the, the kind of cliche about doing the unseen work, but someone has helpfully put together a cliche of, of all the stuff that may have gone unnoticed. But there was there was one image, I'm not sure if it's in that compilation, but one image for me that just captured his contribution was in the French game, the Grand Slam clinching game, and he put in so many huge hits, and the cameras just zoomed in on him. I think it was after one on Thierry Doucetois, and his lungs were just empty you know he was on his knees just he had taken huge drafts of oxygen into his lungs because he had emptied the tank and that to me just summed up what Dan Liddy is all about you know honest industry never looks for the praise or the flattery just doing his job for his teammates and his country so uh, I thought yeah let's let's pick up the big man let's give him the, the credit that sometimes other people don't give to him oh massively so I think for me, that France game is is one that I always point to when people talk about great individual performances. Sure. He just was everywhere that day. I mean, there was the tackle on Wesley Fofana when Fofana's legs yeah. were literally in the air, yeah. and he, he still chopped them down. And then there's the other one where you see the end of it in the in this compilation, but you don't see the full clip, which is, I think France had like a tap penalty on halfway, and they took it quick, and they noticed that their winger was basically stand on the touchline on his own so they put in a cross kick into acres of space and then the first yeah. man to get back and he, he sprinted about 50 metres it's Dan Lydia He's that's right I remember because I think it was Reese Priestham Priestham was coming across wasn't he and the, yeah. and the winger just just about beat Reese Priestham on the outside and then he was confronted with this big slab of Midwalian farmer who just <laughs> just carved into the ground it was a Incredible. The, the, the thing that always struck me as well was that I remember talking to Dan about that game and, and him saying that uh, despite all the plaudits he'd been given for kind of inventing the chop tackle, Rob Howley was often honour him to, to contribute more. You know, think once you've made that tackle, think about your next involvement. And you think about that Alex Cuthbert try that was, was the only try Wales scored in that game. Dan Lydia made the tackle. I think was that on Dusatoire again. Dusatoire hit the deck like he'd been shot by a sniper in the stands. Alan Wynn came in and made the turnover. But then it was Lydia who rolled away, got out, out of the ruck, picked up the ball in the scrum half position and started the passing movement that, that led to Cuthbert's try. I think it went through a couple of pairs of hands before Cuthbert got on the wing. So even though everyone remembers his that French performance for just the sheer physicality of his hits and the, the dominance physically he actually you know with Howley's words ringing in his ears he made the effort to get up from that ruck and there wasn't a scrum half in place so had there not been who knows the ball might have been turned back over in the other direction or hacked away and he started that scoring movement so it's just one of those little things again you know you go back to the unseen work and just the quiet way he goes about his business I think that just kind of sums him up I think the other thing that used to get sort of labelled at him was he didn't offer much ball carrying, but you, you see it in this compilation and it's something I noticed when he came, when he sort of had his last sort of Wales comeback in 2018 is whenever he carries, the one thing he does generate, he maybe not generates metres, but he generates quick ball because his, 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 his sort of service of laying the ball back is so clean. Sure, yeah, totally. And I often wonder, you know, whether he... He'd obviously, certainly under Gatland and Sean Edwards, he'd been told, you know, this is your strength 
if you do this, it will benefit the team. Um, but I, I always used to wonder, for such a big bloke, you know, I always used to wonder why he wasn't used more as a ball carrier. Because, as you say, you know, that explosive power, and he is a genuinely big man, isn't he? You know, he's not a gym honed specimen. He, he, he's a Midwalian farmer, you know, and, and that that kind of strength is honed on his family farm, you know. And I remember speaking to guys like Sam Warburton saying that him doing powerless and deadlifts in the gym was almost like a spectator sport because he could he could lift so much more than anyone else in that squad and relatively easily as well that people used to just come and watch him do it. You know, Robin McBride, who himself was Wales' strongest man. Exactly was, yeah. Even he used to marvel at the sheer physical primal strength that that Lydia possessed. So yeah, it, it it often sort of baffled me why coaches didn't use him more as a as a ball carrier. But I, I guess you know, as we've already said, you don't want to be detracting from what is his his principal asset, and that that is his destructive defence, isn't it? And you, you know, you think about this era now of of high tackles and the last World Cup and the number of red cards we saw. There was never any danger that Dan Lydia was going to fall foul of that that law because. He he was just so incredibly technically precise in the way he went about tackling. You know, you see him in that compilation. He's almost thinking ahead to who's going to receive the ball next and get in his body in the right position. And and some of those tackles were just jaw-dropping. And then, of course, you know, the, the knock-on effect that you had a jackler in the team like Sam Warburton, who was one of the world's best, and he would be right there in position, the two of them almost telepathic, to steal a ball. It was a, a winning combination. Massively so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that France game because somewhat fittingly in, in Dan Lydia's style, I think I, I spent most of the day out, out on the hills and in the lambing shed and then came into the house to watch the match. So I suppose that's that's quite fitting given it's, it's fitting, Dan Lydia. Um, I, didn't, I didn't end up yeah. with the same sort of farmer's body as, as Dan Lydia. <laughs> I remember going up to his his farm once in Abercrombie, just sort of north of Sandringdod, and um, in it, him because his brother played a bit as well. Brother played for Ebervale, and um, they they built a gym because it's so remote. You know, I, I mean, I grew up in halfway between Sandringdod and Bill, so I, I thought that was remote. But I was only eight or seventy, whereas his farm is it's you know it's that bit higher. It can be snowing there and not snowing in town. You know, it's it's that kind of weird microclimate, and um, so they didn't have access to gyms or to leisure centres and stuff. So they, him and his brother, built this sort of Frankenstein gym, just made up of old poles and random mismatch weights and stuff. And he, he and he showed me it the day we went up and filmed the feature there, and uh, and it's just it's just what you'd expect. No frills, just in an old shed on the farm, um, you know, I don't know if there was even a stereo there. Um, and, and it's a bit like, you know, Joe Calzaghi's gym in Newbridge, no, no heating in that place. You know, he, he used to run over the mountain to get to it. It's, it's a similar story with, with Dan Lydia, you know, absolutely no frills, just a bench, a bar, some weights, a rocky poster peeling off the wall. Uh, and you kind of see that environment and it's, it's no wonder that he turned into the player that he became. Indeed. I don't think I've, I've never actually been to his, uh, near his farm. I've, I've 
been to Abbey Camere stock judging. And my mum was from Lambister, so I used to go by Abbey Camere a lot. But I don't think I've ever been to his to his farm in my travels. Oh mate, it was it was one of the best days. It actually snowed. We we left Cardiff. I think it was about it was around about April time, so not not the depths of winter. And we got to the the um, Horseshoe Pass and the through the Brecon Beacons, and it started to snow. And we weren't expecting it. I don't think either any of us had looked at the weather forecast. By the time we got to Abercombe here, there was a two inches of snow all across the ground, um, which actually made for a brilliant feature because we we'd planned to go out and film him on the farm. So he was driving the tractor through, you know, two inches of snow and getting the lambs in and all sorts. So we ended up freezing, you know, because we'd been out filming and doing all sorts of stuff. And by the time we'd finished the shoot, we, we, our teeth were chattering, you know, icicles on our eyelids. Um, we couldn't wait to get back in the car, crank up the heating and get back to Cardiff. And we were about to, to leave. And um, Dan pretty much came out and said, oh, what are you doing? And we said, oh, we're going to head back now and start editing. And he went, well, you know, mum's made lunch for us all. <laughs> I said, you are? He said, yeah, yeah mum's made lunch for us all. So we all trooped back into the kitchen now. And his mother, bless her, had made this enormous lasagna for all of us. So I was there, uh, assistant producer, cameraman. Ben Evans was there, um, uh, you know, the Photography. official photographer. Um, and for a little guy, he's got a hell of an appetite on him. Um, and then there was Dan and his, his parents. I think his brother might have been there as well. So she'd made this meal for all of us. You know, we weren't expecting it at all. And it was the most delicious lasagna I think I've ever tasted you know and on a day like that when we'd been frozen to our our bones to get a home-cooked meal on an arga in in this remote Midwalian farmhouse was just the best end of the day you you can imagine I think the last time I was back home in Landod I actually bumped into Dan Lydiot's mum and uh, Nan in Tesco of all places the new Tesco in Landod one of those Mm -hmm. bizarre moments where you know, my mum knows her mum and, and vice versa. And then they're like, oh, do you, do you know Dan? Do you know Ben? And that's all, all sort of mothers trying to sort of introduce each other's sons who, who already sort of cross paths. You know, Midway in hospitality, mate. Can't beat it, can you? Can't knock it. Can't beat it. Can't beat it. No, I, was, I mean, in terms of Midway and rugby, the last decade or so has been all right sort of for me growing up because before Dan, I had, Mark Jones to sort of look up to, who was another who achieved a yeah. fair bit on the international stage, maybe not always getting the credit he deserved. Oh, mate, he, hugely underrated. I, I, I always felt for Mark Jones because he won that Grand Slam in 08 and Shane was on the other wing. Yeah. And, and, and there was that, you'll remember this, he could have, he nearly scored what would have been the best try of that championship and one of the tr- best tries of the ages when he got the ball on his own line and ran the length against France and was tackled inches from the line, inches from the line. And if, if the turf had been a bit wetter and he'd have slid a bit further, that try would have gone down into the annals. And I, I've always felt sorry for Mark. I've said this to him, you know, if it wasn't for that last-ditch tackle, I forget who it was now, but he was. I remember him saying that the reason the guy got there was because he wasn't doing his job in attack. This French winger was basically hanging back when he should have been up in the attacking line because it was a turnover situation. Um, 
but that would have been that was a try for the ages, and it would have just slightly altered the balance, you know, because Shane rightly got all the plaudits in that campaign. He was unbelievable at the peak of his powers, but uh, I'd have liked it for Mark to have just got a little bit, a little bit of the credit that he deserved because he he was you know he wasn't the um, the jinking wizard that Shane was but in terms of just acceleration speed and finishing ability he was he was phenomenal it probably won't surprise you that they they played that clip I think about four times in in the assembly the the, the Monday after in Bill <laughs> High School just they just replayed Mark Jones nearly scoring in the in the 08 Grand Slam game four times oh man but what they, could have been indeed but yeah that's the thing people forget I, I mean he had two serious knee reconstructions. Yeah. Didn't play rugby for Wales for two and a half years and then came back and was, you know, f- between 2006, 2007, Ruddock's sort of last games, Gareth Jenkins era, he was consistently yeah. scoring tries for Wales. Yeah, definitely. And you're right, I remember speaking to him after, it was either the first or the second operation and, and there was genuine doubt about whether he'd ever pull on his boots again. You know, they, they were proper injuries that kept him sidelined for a, a long, long time. So yeah, to to come back and, and seemingly not lose any speed. You know, that, that was his prime asset, wasn't it? His his acceleration was frightening. Um so you think to undergo that that you always be nervous because not only are you getting older and losing that fast twitch, also, you know, you you think something that severe and invasive would surely have an impact on your speed, but he, he seemed to be as, as quick and elusive as he always was. Indeed. It must, it must be a mid-Wales thing, because obviously Dan Lydia, you know, yeah. he, he had nearly the, the injury to end all injuries before he really started. Yeah, and, and and that only, I guess, adds to the to the legend, doesn't it? You know, all the stuff we've talked about, all his, his attributes and, and the way he approached the game, the fearless way that he hurled himself into into contact still does uh, you know to, to to do that having broken your neck effectively uh, just says even more about the the bravery of the guy I think that's probably enough rad and a worship for one podcast uh, <laughs> you should re- rename this podcast the Radna Files uh, we'll move on to your final clip um which is the Royal Wealth Show 7s, 1993. No, it's uh, something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tre- Trevor Cloud 7s. We'll, we'll delete, yeah, we'll delete that one. You and I can just do that one when we're off air. Yeah. Uh, the fourth clip. I Do you know what? I never watched this until today, and that's... I, I find it... I, I knew about the, 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 the subject of the video. I even went on the same tour as him as, as you did. And yet I'd never actually so sat good. down to, to watch the video until today. It's so good. And and it's, you know, in this era of digital content, it, it's so easy to get things wrong, isn't it? And when you try and make something humorous uh, or you try and make it appeal to a certain demographic, um, and and so often on, on social media in particular, you just think, People just read the mood wrong or they get the tone wrong. And it's difficult because, as you know, Ben, you know, you're know you trying to appeal to new audiences, to young audiences, to older audiences, and trying to create stuff that will resonate and, and kind of get through the, the white noise of, of social media. And it's so easy to get it wrong. And I just thought these guys got it so right. They just nailed it. And, and it's... 
it's a spoof video, and I, I guess a lot of people listening will have seen it or, or heard about it. But it was a competition run to find the ultimate Lions fan, and the winner was flown out to New Zealand, all expenses paid, with a ticket to the first test. And uh, it was basically a panel consisting of David Flatman, Tom Shanklin, and Richard Hill. Not known for his his humour, like like the other <laughs> no. two. But he kind of played the straight man in this video. And it was a mock interview, or a mock audition, where a guy called Stuart Broad um, from uh, Port Albert, Aberavon, um, was invited to effectively have an interview. He was he was told he was shortlisted. So he, there'd been an application process um, and he was being interviewed to be the ultimate Lions fan. And if, and if he passed the test and was chosen, he was off to New Zealand with his, his girlfriend. And, um, he, well, you, you've watched it. It's five minutes of pure comedy gold because what he didn't know was he'd already won. He was the only person they interviewed, but he was led to believe he was one of several, so really had to prove himself. Um, and they conducted it with straight faces as though it was a proper interview. Um, and the questions were things like, what's Lee Halfpenny's real name? And you can see the colour drain from his face as he's thinking, I haven't done, I haven't done the homework, I should know this. And of course, Lee Halfpenny's real name is Lee Halfpenny. Everyone knows that. But he... he he panicked and thought there must be another dimension to this question. And and there was another one of what would you consider David Flatman's Lions highlight? And he panicked again and said, oh, New Zealand 93. But of course, not only did David Flatman never play for the Lions and got, a, what was it, eight caps for England, he'd have been 13 in 1993 when Stuart thought that he was uh, in his prime. So it was just error upon error humiliation upon humiliation and, and Stuart Broad was a brilliant sport he played along with it and the last thing he was asked to do was to deliver a Telfer style speech imagine he was the coach deliver a Telfer style speech to the Lions and fair play to him I've since learned because I got to know him a bit and he's been on Scrum 5 since and as you say we, we, we all saw him on that tour in 2017 uh, he's a lovely lovely fella salt of the earth uh, his girlfriend as well and um, he he does a bit of amateur dramatics. I didn't realise this when I I first seen the video. So in fairness to him, he totally inhabits the role, and in the space of sixty seconds, delivers this quite incredible speech, which has Hill, Flatman, and Shanklin in absolute hysterics because he he goes for it. He absolutely goes for it. Um, the upshot is, and you'll see if you know people listening to this will watch the video. As I mentioned, he was the only guy. He, he'd already won. He didn't have to be put through this test. But what's so perfect then about the end? And I've watched it multiple times. And I still get emotional watching it on his behalf because, as he said, he'd never have been able to afford to go on his own bat. So, and he, and he is clearly a rugby obsessive and to see his reaction when he's told is absolutely priceless so in these troubled times it's just such a lovely genuinely lovely piece of footage to watch watch back you know it's genuinely funny but it's actually quite moving at the same time so fair play that was that was a piece of rugby content done absolutely right and he also commits the cardinal sin of interviews which is taking your shirt off I wasn't going to mention that, but yeah, 
so so good, wasn't it? The, there was the, the cool. lion shirt just cool. hanging Shank there. Guard. It's, totally. But again, Shanks delivers the line perfectly, didn't he? Just says, "Didn't have to take shirts off." And bless him, you know, he's if he, if he wasn't compromised enough as it was, he then found himself totally exposed. Literally, stood up with his shirt off with these two or these three hard-nosed men just drilling into him uh, fair play to him and it it was you know they knew it was probably a size or two too small for him so it just made what was already an awkward situation twice as awkward but uh, fair play to him you know he he pulled it out of the bag and he got himself a trip to New Zealand and then as you'll have known from being on that tour Ben Every time I turned on the TV in New Zealand, he was there. He, he got on every show going. Current affairs shows, morning breakfast shows, rugby shows, sports magazine shows. You know, he, he was a, a proper personality on that tour, all off the back of his his uh, scene-stealing performance in that initial video. I mean, he, he certainly was. I think, I think the most I got was on a radio show in Palmerston North, which is, <laughs> if anyone's been to Palmerston North... <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine the the age demographic is anything under eighty. <laughs> hey, don't knock it, mate. Yeah, well, you know, you do what you can when you <laughs> when you're on tour. Exactly. I'm sure you put in a put a stellar performance in. Well, you know, what, what can I say? Ne- 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 leave them wanting more. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Well, there we go. I think we've reached the end of. Uh, the videos of the isolation care package um, and certainly that that is a, a selection of clips which I think will uh, lift people's spirits until they get back to watching Contagion and the like on Netflix I certainly hope so brilliant that is a, f- a fantastic selection of clips the perfect mix of rugby uh, forwards dropping goals and Radnisher which is <laughs> Just a prerequisite for the podcast. Maybe a little heavy on the in the end. I think uh, I, 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 I didn't quite think about how enthusiastically you'd, you'd take that Radner thread and, and run with it. Oh. So uh, perhaps it, perhaps this one should come with a, a warning. You, you can take the boy out of Radner, but when he's when he's in lockdown in Cardiff, it's probably all he's going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a bit of judicious editing on your part, Ben. It'll be a, a little less. Radner heavy, but but I'll leave that entirely up to you. Well, um, I'm not the sort of person who believes in judicious editing or or, edi- <laughs> or editing of any sorts, really. <laughs> but whatever makes your life easier. Indeed, uh, Ross. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure. Can't really get my words out at the minute. Uh, getting to the end of the podcast. <laughs> but no, so pleasure's been, all mine, Ben. It's fantastic. I uh, appreciate you doing this, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the readers are going to look forward to watching your clips from now on. Good man. 